Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We've got a lot of great articles for you this week. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, the BBC is pleased to report that recent scans now show that Edvard Munch wrote Madman Graffiti on his famous screen painting. Hmm. It has been the cause of much conjecture in the art world. So inscribed in pencil in the top left-hand corner, the words can only have been painted by a madman are <laughs> <laughs> So possibly a little tongue-in-cheek, maybe um, the result of some pent-up angst, but new tests by the National Museum of Norway have confirmed that they were made by the man himself. They compared it to some handwriting to make sure that it was his. They've concluded it is without a doubt Munch's own. It also, the article just kind of happenstance mentions that in 1994, the scream was stolen from a Norwegian art museum and was recovered in a daring undercover operation by British detectives. Hmm. Provided no link, but I was like, hey, this, I, I was alive in 1994, possibly not aware, but like... Yeah, how come I didn't know about that? Right? Off my radar completely. But anyway, even today, the work provokes really strong emotions. And at the time it was revealed, it provoked strong criticism, as well as public speculation around his mental state. <laughs> uh, but according to his own diary, he was profoundly hurt by this reaction, and it's believed he returned to the painting to add his penciled statement afterwards. It's funny that, like, audiences at the time, like, what we're so desensitized to, like, I mean, it's a perfectly fine painting, but it's like, I wouldn't say, like, oh my god, I'm shocked by that. Clearly the person who painted it was insane. Right? But maybe because mental health was a little bit or a lot more stigmatized at the time, right. that it was just, you know, something to gossip about, celeb culture, that kind of thing, and it clearly wounded the same way that bad celeb gossip today can yeah. wound celebrities. I mean, hashtag yeah. free Britney, right? <laughs> <laughs> I say it yeah. flippantly, but I, I believe it. Like, yeah, girl, she needs absolutely. to be free. <laughs> I mean, it makes me think of, uh, you know, the musical standards way back in the past where if you played a minor chord a little too intensely, people would accuse you of making devil's music. <laughs> right, know? right. Like, like ladies are fainting in the front row. They can't mm -hmm. handle it. <laughs> yeah. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from thedailybeast.com. It's titled Why Lady Gaga's Dog Napping Has Stumped Pet Detectives. Oh. So, have y'all heard about this? Yes. I have. It okay, was really yeah. sort of frightening, I thought. I mean, yeah. I understand people yeah. steal Upsetting. dogs, but like shooting the guy seemed excessive to me. Well, I mean, when you consider the reward amount, I think it was something like $500,000. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can hire a hitman from less, according sure. to uh, media I've seen. Right, right. Yeah. No, not, not Although, that did knowledge. happen after. <laughs> <laughs> the reward was given after the shooting happened. So, mm. uh, just to just to be to to catch anybody who hasn't caught up on this yet, uh, Lady Gaga's two French bulldogs were stolen off a of Los Angeles street on Wednesday night by unidentified assailants who shot the pop star's dog walker. The dog walker, I believe his name is Ryan Fisher, was shot in the chest, but he did survive and okay. he's in critical condition. But they do think he'll make a full recovery. 
The dogs were actually returned unharmed late Friday, but the suspects remain at large. So we center on Jamie Katz, who is a pet detective and has been for the last seven years. But even she was kind of blown away by the Lady Gaga dog napping. Mm. Of the 700 lost pet cases Katz has taken on since she started her agency in Florida in late 2015, only about 4% of those have actually been thefts. More often than not, Katz is dealing with frantic owners who think their pets have been stolen when actually they just ran off or a concerned passerby took them in. Mm. But... Given the added violence of the Lady Gaga shooting, she says it's now more of a missing person case that the police are best equipped to deal with. Mm. Although the crime was vicious, the motive likely wasn't complicated. Brandy Hunter is vice president of PR for the American Kennel Club, and she says people steal dogs for two main reasons, both coming from greed. They want the dog or they want to sell the dog. Mm. Whereas Jamie Katz has sometimes seen a third reason, which is a retaliation type situation where an animal is stolen because of something that person did. So French bulldogs, which weigh less than 28 pounds, can cost would-be owners thousands. They're the fourth most popular breed of 197 dog breeds listed on the American Kennel Club's website. And Hunter says popular breeds that are smaller in stature are the most common targets. Frenchies, Yorkies, Shih Tzus. But unlike human hostages, stolen dogs are rarely ransomed back to their original owners. Uh, Hunter says ransom is not a common situation when it comes to dog theft. The thief is opting to sell. Mm -hmm. I know French bulldogs are also some of the more expensive pets to have because of how they're bred. Their heads are too big to be delivered naturally, and so they all have to be born through C-section. Oh, I didn't know that. That's what makes them expensive. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. So the crime of dog napping has a long history beyond Lady Gaga, similar to the old crimes of robbing graves to supply illicit cadavers to scientists. <laughs> wow. So weird comparison, comparison, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> so dog nappers' primary targets for fencing stolen dogs were once medical researchers. In 1966, however, the Animal Welfare Act severely limited the procurement and experimentation on canines. A longtime dog thief testified before Congress about his profession as part of the proceedings, and the shift led thieves to sell more often to breeders. Notable dog nappings vary by region. Uh, In Ireland, where dog racing is popular, a greyhound worth a million euros was stolen from his kennel in 2016. Dang. Yeah. Well, how are you going to race a greyhound that is that famous without people knowing that it was stolen? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's easier to steal dogs than horses, too, right? Like, I've certainly heard of horse thieves, but, like, dog thieves, you know, ostensibly a little quicker to get away with. I don't know. Right. And Um, if you can steal Munch's The Scream, you can steal a Greyhound. Like, there's a underground market for everything, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, the abduction of Lady Gaga's dogs is not, according to Hunter, part of a larger pattern in the United States. Although, in the UK, experts say the past year has been the worst ever for pet thefts. Not sure why. The coronavirus pandemic has sent demand for pets skyrocketing, so much so that desperate New Yorkers adopted or fostered nearly every available dog and cat in the city in March 2020. Uh, I know in Austin, we Mm -hmm. emptied out a number of pet shelters as well. Mm -hmm. And despite what might seem like obvious economics, high demand boosts prices, which in turn incentivize thieves. The American Kennel Club has not seen a marked increase in dog nappings as lockdown has rolled on, and stay-at-home orders are probably the reason for that. Mm -hmm. Sure, if you're home Uh, with your dog every day, nobody can steal it from you. Right, Mm -hmm. yeah. Or at least it would be much, much harder. Unless they have Mm -hmm. a gun, in which case they clearly... Yeah. Don't be a celebrity, and keep your dogs at home. (laughs) 
<laughs> and have a big dog. Like these are all little yes. dogs that can't fight back. I was just thinking about I have two little dogs and a big one. Someone could absolutely steal the little ones. But the big one would not put up with that nonsense. He would absolutely yeah. <laughs> fight back. I would love to see someone try to steal our pit bull. Good luck, guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, New Republic poses an interesting question. What if we pay people to stop using drugs? Ooh. And, you know, glib headline aside, what they're talking about is an established, if not very widespread, substance abuse treatment philosophy called contingency management that focuses on reinforcing positive behavior rather than punishing or infantilizing addicts. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, what it looks like is program members receive a reward, usually money, for every day that they come back in and test clean. And, you know, on the face of it, a lot of people would, of course, say that sounds like a terrible idea. You're incentivizing going to use drugs in the first place. But proponents say it has a ton of research behind it that proves that, you know, like it or not, it's actually more effective and costs less overall than all other existing treatment programs. Wow. Yeah. So one example of a contingency management program is PROP, the Positive Reinforcement Opportunity Project in San Francisco. The article follows the case of Tyrone Clifford Jr., an HIV-positive meth addict who had been using for 20 years by the time he came in. He had repeatedly turned down inpatient rehab over the years because his husband, who was also HIV positive, needed his help at home. And Tyrone felt like he couldn't just disappear for two or three months. Hmm. He also just didn't like the attitude of 12-step programs that focus on powerlessness and surrender. Yeah. He said, I did this. I can undo it. I'm not giving up control. And advocates of traditional rehab would say, of course you think that. That's the problem. But contingency management says, if you don't meet them where they are, you won't get to them at all. And so mm. at PROP, the program lasts a maximum of 12 weeks, and the total payout, if you don't miss a single day, is $330. So it's not that much, but it is something if you're the kind of person who already has a massive drug problem. Sure. Tyrone says when he entered, he actually had no intention of quitting for good. He thought, I can do 12 weeks, and then when I'm done, I'll have 330 bucks to get high with. But the program also includes counseling and other support, and by the end of the 12 weeks, he found that he was thinking a lot more clearly and was ready to try being sober for real. Wow. He's, yeah, wow. he said the $330, like I said, doesn't sound like a lot, but it's enough for a person to have food to eat or get transportation to doctor's appointments that they may have been missing or just mm -hmm. pay their cell phone bill so they can reestablish social connections, which are super important if you're trying to sort of get back into society. Yeah. They said even if someone comes in literally high at that time, and resets their financial rewards, they're never shamed or turned away from the counseling and other services. And that sort of acceptance was very appealing to him and what ultimately got him in there. So unsurprisingly, all of this is still a really hard sell for both federal regulators mm -hmm. and fundraisers. Nobody gets elected on the idea of coddling drug addicts, right? Right. And in fact, there is on the books already an anti-kickback statute that outlaws any form of reward system in substance abuse programs that are paid for by Medicaid. but Actually, contingency management programs have been quietly in use at VA hospitals for about 10 years now because the VA is considered an independent entity that doesn't have to abide by the same Medicaid rules. So Dr. Dominic DeFilippis, a clinical psychologist who helped implement the VA's program, says he's heard all the objections before, and his response is just look at the results. Since 2011, they've treated around 5,400 veterans who have provided over 70,000 urine samples and more than 92% of those have tested negative. He said wow. the VA's program tweaked the rewards aspect a little bit using what they called the fishbowl method. So instead of receiving a set reward after each negative screen, participants draw prize slips at random 
that might just say, good job, but might be worth as much as $100. The more Mm. consecutive negative screens you have racked up, the more slips you're allowed to draw on each visit. He said, on average, folks in the program earn around $200 by the end. So again, it's not a lot, but it's Mm -hmm. enough. And Dave Philippus says his favorite time is Christmas because almost all of the veterans talk about how they're going to use the prize money to buy presents for family members that they're starting to reconnect with through their sobriety. Whereas in standard treatment programs, he said the holidays are known for bringing added depression and relapse. So he's like, that alone says to me that it's working. You know. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it was really there's not a lot funny about this. It was just a really fascinating article to me. Because I've always been, you know, extremely utilitarian about stuff. Whether you're talking about criminals or drug addicts or even just chronic disease, the fact is these people exist. And unless Mm -hmm. we're going to go fully tribal and start banishing people to the hinterlands, you know, one way or another, (laughs) we're going to have to be investing something as a society to take care of them, right? Yep. So it just makes sense to do the thing that's most effective instead of trying to put some sort of moral judgment on top of it. Yeah, definitely. Gosh, so many of the ills that we have that create really damaging conditions for communities can be solved by just giving the people some money. Yeah. Yeah. I do like that they threw in a minor, smaller addiction in terms of the lotto-style price slips because that variable reward loop is Mm -hmm. a very well-known phenomenon to get people hooked into certain types of behaviors which here it sounds like is a much better alternative than what they would be doing otherwise so you know (laughs) right right it's sort of a gamification system towards well-being and Mm -hmm. and that's such a brilliant usage of it well and he talked a little bit about this idea of like people get very haughty about like i don't need to be bribed to do the right thing and he's like actually we're all being bribed all the time like we have rewards mm-hmm. programs on our cards. We have there's so many things in life where we're being bribed, but we just feel like it's somehow not a weakness in our case. Yep. So it's an interesting idea. I I'm all for it if it saves money. That seems to be <laughs> the main thing. Yeah, yeah and saves lives. It yeah. restores people's confidence and connections with the world. I love it. Yeah. Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Who here has Zoom fatigue? Oh, I'm raising my for hand. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fatigued with all of it. On the computer, off the computer, whatever. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, introvert defaults aside, this article comes to us from New Atlas. And the study was from Stanford University communications expert Jeremy Balenson. So he suggests there are four key factors that make video conferencing so uniquely tiring, as well as, and here's what really hooked me in, some simple solutions to reduce exhaustion. We're not just telling you that the world is bad. Yeah. We have some <laughs> answers I was say, I don't, I don't need you to tell me why it's awful. I need you to tell me how to fix it. <laughs> Well, this article is going to do a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. So this guy, Jeremy Balenson, he's also the founding director of the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford University. What a perfect sign of the times, right? Right. (laughs) And he has spent over two decades studying the ways that virtual communication affects individuals. So he has comprehensively articulated his ideas in a new peer-reviewed perspective, which you can find in the journal Technology, Mind, and Behavior. And here are the four key reasons why it can be so exhausting, as well as the solutions. One, everyone is staring at you all the time. So (laughs) the first cause for Zoom fatigue is that we're in a state of stressed hyperarousal generated by the excessive stretches of close-up eye contact. Hmm. You know, if you're sitting in a room in a conference table with other people or even just, you know, hanging out at the cube, you'll typically shift from looking at a speaker to looking at someone fiddling with a pen or getting coffee. 
But on Zoom, it's kind of impolite or implies that you're not paying attention if you're not at least looking at the screen mm -hmm. of faces. Like if you're looking mm -hmm. off to the side and you might be hyper aware of that. And so generally speaking, the anxiety generated by a number of faces staring at you is pretty much akin to public speaking, right? So from a perceptual standpoint, Zoom turns every participant on a call into a constant speaker smothered with eye gaze. Mm -hmm. Stressful sounding already, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so another factor at play compounding the stress of constant eye gaze is also the size of faces on your monitor. There was some landmark research from a cultural anthropologist named Edward Hall in the 1960s that suggested interpersonal distance fundamentally influences emotion and behavior. So in other words, a person's intimate space is about a radius of 60 centimeters or 23 inches. We kind of refer to that as our personal bubble, which mm -hmm. we sort of intuitively know, right? Mm -hmm. And interactions inside your personal bubble are generally reserved for family or intimate friends. But depending on your monitor size or your Zoom settings, large faces of strangers can often be presented in close proximity within your bubble. Oh. So short-term solutions to mitigate these issues, just reduce the size of your window yeah, and try to move <laughs> away. From, yeah, shrink them up and, you know, wheel your chair a little bit further back from your computer monitor. Hmm. And that way it can increase the personal space between you and the other Zoom participants' faces, right? Okay. There was also an influential 1999 study from Stanford University that looked at the differences in cognitive processing between audio communication and audiovisual communication. So they, at the time, paired up volunteers and presented them with two tasks that were designed to measure cognitive load. There was a guessing game task and a recognition task. And the study revealed that the subjects performing the task by audio only performed better on the secondary recognition task compared to the subjects completing the task by video conferencing. So it just takes more cognitive work to communicate. Mm -hmm. One suggestion to this problem is maybe Zoom meetings can require audio-only breaks to just relieve the cognitive load of visual interactions. Yeah, I've had a number of meetings, mostly like one-on-one, -on -one, where it's like both people want to just have a phone call, but it feels like you have to offer a Zoom, even though like these, yes. are, these are people who live in another state. I never would have Zoomed with them before either. This right. was always a phone relationship. <laughs> but now all of a sudden it's like, oh, should we do a Zoom? And we're both kind of like, well, I mean, I, you know, I'm fine with a call if you are. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine with that too. <laughs> and I've had a couple of conversations where people are just like, oh my God, I'm so glad you said that. Like, I'm, I, there's no reason for us to Zoom. It's stupid. Let's just have a phone call. <laughs> yeah, speak up. Chances are there are a lot of people who feel the same way you yeah, do and rather want be on to the keep the video off. <laughs> yeah. So the final factor here is the way they introduce it is imagine that you're in the physical workplace and for the entirety of an eight hour workday, an assistant is following you around with a handheld mirror. And for every single task <laughs> you did and every single conversation you have, they make sure you can see your own face in the mirror. Yep. Sounds stressful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for decades, researchers have investigated the effect of seeing oneself in a mirror. It does have pro-social behavior and self-evaluation. So in general, this body of work suggests there may be a negative effect generated by intense mirror image viewing. And this is potentially underpinned by the way a reflection of oneself amplifies critical self-evaluation. So the solution, hide the view of yourself during a Zoom call, right? So like right. once you have checked your teeth, make sure there's no spinach, your hair is okay, then you can just close the self-view window and, you know, love yourself. Mm -hmm. You're beautiful. You look fine. <laughs> this is really funny to me because I'm going to sound like a total nerd right now, but there's a small sideline story in Infinite Jest 
about how as video conferencing has become more popular, because he's predicting this back in the 90s, people have grown so self-conscious that there's a whole secondary market that's arisen in fake faces where people create these like rubber masks of their most ideal, beautiful self. But now they've gotten to the point where people have only ever seen their beautiful rubber mask. They don't ever want to leave the house because they're like, Mm -hmm. my real face is uglier than anybody's ever seen. And so it creates this sort of like mini celebrity syndrome within everybody. It's super dystopian. but (laughs) Well, and it's also noted in the article. I skipped over it because I thought a David Foster Wallace infinite jest quote would be a bit much. (laughs) Not for me, baby. (laughs) I mean, I can certainly point to the first thing, I think, in terms of like looking at the camera where I have moved a window underneath the camera so that when I'm viewing whatever's in that window, it looks like I'm looking closer to the camera Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. so that I seem like I'm more engaged than I maybe am. I mean, sometimes I'll do it with the actual video call, too, if I want to be polite. Mm -hmm. Well, if you want to uh, start a rubber mask company, I'll go in with you. I think there's room for it. (laughs) I mean, it's going to be luxury face filters and backgrounds, virtual backgrounds. That's where it's going to be at. You know, that'll be the first step. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from jstore.org, and it's titled The Physics of Karate. So a human hand has the power to split wooden planks and demolish concrete blocks. Mm -hmm. And a trio of physicists investigated why this feat doesn't shatter our bodies. Uh, (laughs) In the late 1970s, a team of karate-loving physicists decided to perform an experiment inspired by their collective passion for martial arts. Uh, The group was made up of physicist Michael Feld, a brown belt who liked to illustrate the physics of karate via live demonstrations to his classes (laughs) at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Ronald McNair, future astronaut and fifth-degree black belt, and undergrad Stefan Wilk. This feels a lot like them desperately trying to prove they're not physics nerds. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> they have to go out of their way. They'd be like, but also I could split a piece of wood with my bare hands. Yeah. <laughs> it could also totally go the other way where they're like trying desperately to prove they're not karate nerds. Where they're like, look, this right. is just a physics experiment. Okay. <laughs> right, that gone right. way too far. <laughs> So the uh, 1979 paper by Feld, McNair, and Wilk, they wanted to know how can a bare hand demolish a solid block of wood or concrete without injury? What's the trick? Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, there is no trick. The perfect karate strike is nothing more than a precise application of Newton's laws. The human hand is capable of generating a very high degree of force in a very short period of time. The impact from a typical strike lasts only about five milliseconds. And through a combination of theory and experiment, the team discovered that within this brief flash of time, the hand of the karateka, or practitioner of karate, can exert a force of more than 3,000 newtons, or a wallop of 675 pounds. And the team's model indicates that the hand must reach a speed of 6.1 meters per second to break wood, and 10.6 meters per second to break concrete. And such speeds agree with our observation that beginners can break wood but not concrete, they write. A hand Mm -hmm. velocity of 6.1 meters per second is within range of the beginner, but a velocity of 10.6 meters per second calls for training and practice. Mm. Feld and McNair were able to show off their martial arts skills during the investigation. Both were photographed striking a pile of wood planks at 120 frames per second, which allowed them to measure the displacement, velocity, and acceleration to different parts of the fist. And Mm -hmm. the obvious follow-up question, how is it that the hand of the karateka is not shattered by the force of the karate strike? Mm -hmm. And here, its anatomy is what rescues it. 
The human bone is five times stiffer than concrete and 50 times harder to break. Huh. So apparently, successfully karate chopping a femur would take more than 25,000 newtons worth of force. It's really technique, not strength, that provides the real power. So yeah, pretty wild. I had no idea that the human hand was that strong, but I uh, I actually have a black belt in Taekwondo. I was almost second degree. I broke a lot of boards. What? Never broke any concrete personally, oh. but yeah, you know, you can like stack multiple boards, kick or punch them. And like, if you don't go through all, all of them, you see the physics happen where like the first one will not break and the second one will just explode behind it uh, <laughs> because, you know, the force transfers. But yeah, like I've seen this human hand shape thing where like if you watch UFC fights or martial arts demonstrations and really slow motion oh yeah the, the human body yeah it just wobbles it gets really really <laughs> weird um now you know you can probably break a block of wood with some practice just make sure it's the right type of wood because it i does had matter. no idea you were a black belt dude yeah yeah, yeah I, I was a martial arts nerd at some point i've done yeah next you're gonna tell us you were a physics nerd too and we just don't know uh, yeah. <laughs> you've been secretly doing quantum experiments in the background and <laughs> that that would be pretty sweet but no i have no cover for my martial arts nerd <laughs> next link next link all right well this one comes from atlas obscura it's called inside the gently competitive world of giant vegetable growing oh yeah it's very cool and it's got all the pictures that you would hope that this article would have Contests for oversized produce have obviously existed in many places and times, but apparently the sport, if you can call it that, is experiencing a little bit of a renaissance right now in the UK. One prominent member of that world is Peter Glazebrook, a 76-year-old former building surveyor from Nottinghamshire, England, who most recently won a new world record for a four-foot-long leak at the 2020 Mansfield Grow Show. Hey. Yeah, so good for him. He says it's the 16th world record he's ever held, but, quote, it's a competitive hobby, so I only currently hold three. His other two titles at the moment are for the world's heaviest cauliflower, 60 pounds, and the biggest potato at 10 pounds. The photo of Glazebrook as well is pretty amazing. It's particularly adorable. He's just this quintessentially British old man in a cardigan <laughs> cradling a humongous <laughs> onion like it's a baby. Like, he's just fantastic. I love him. I want to see this 10-pound tater. Yeah, I don't, they didn't have a picture of that one. They've got some cabbages that are like four feet across. It's pretty crazy. Wow. Yeah. One of Glazebrook's close friends and competitors is Kevin Forty, who the article calls the unofficial spokesman for the giant veg community. He runs the <laughs> UK Giant Vegetable Championship, which was started in 1980 by his own father, based on basically a simple pub bet over who could grow the biggest pumpkin that year. It's become a local annual tradition, but in the last five years, Forty says he's grown the competition from around five exhibitors to a hundred, and they're even starting to get attention from governments who are interested in the seeds they've cultivated over the years. So both Glazebrook and Forty say it's a very friendly competition, and Glazebrook himself often gives away his seeds to other competitors. He says, I've taken the view that if anyone can put in more time, knowledge, and effort than me, they deserve to win. He says the cash prizes are never more than about 50 pounds. And you need a good challenge to start again each year. So it seems like it's a pleasant, happy thing. Like there's no subterfuge in the world of overgrown vegetables, at least right now. Maybe we'll get that way. <laughs> On the other hand, 40 notes that competition has definitely gotten closer, even if it's still in good fun. And winners are often determined by a matter of a few ounces. He says at one competition, he arrived late while the press was already interviewing the presumed winner of the prize for heaviest chili pepper. Then we came in with a chili that was only 90 grams more. He wasn't very happy. 
(laughs) (laughs) He says the greatest issue in the giant vegetable growing community is simply getting the monster produce to the competitions in one piece. Mm. Carrots, parsnips, and green beans are surprisingly delicate, especially at larger sizes. And softer produce like tomatoes, melons, and cucumbers have to stay refrigerated right up to the last minute before showing. He notes that a light rain can split a zucchini, so you're really battling with the elements, which makes it feel much more intense than it, I think, is. But they take it seriously. Both men insist that the produce they grow is entirely edible, and Forty once turned a single giant zucchini he'd grown into a thousand jars of chutney, which he gave out to everyone in town. Wow. You know, I'm sure he had fun doing it, and that's what's important. But I can just imagine the people in the town going like, oh, great, more chutney. Thanks, man. Like, giving away gifts of food never works out like you want it to. I don't know. I would be pleased to partake in a champion piece of veg. Yeah, I don't mind food deliveries if it preserves really well. You know, a mm-hmm. chutney's decent. Yeah, like it'll that, last a while. Yeah. And of course, the fact that these things are edible is what's caught the eye of governments who are looking to make food production more efficient sort of worldwide. Some of 40 seeds were recently requested by the Australian Antarctic Division for research. He's also consulting with a university in Spain on a research project involving giant beets, which he insists are very tasty when they're prepared the right way. (laughs) (laughs) Weirdly enough, he says he was even once asked for growing tips by the rapper Snoop Dogg, who told (gasps) the BBC in an interview... I know where this is. I'm hoping this yeah. is where it's going. <laughs> he told the BBC in an interview, I do vegetation myself. <laughs> they don't get any more explicit than that. But if we start seeing like 10 foot tall weed on the market, I think we'll know where it came from. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. This article comes to us from TheGuardian.com and it's titled Mammoth Wooly, Barack the Overgrown Sheep Shorn of His 35 Kilogram Fleece. And oh, I, this is the one who got lost, right? And he was yeah. all like super fluffy. Yeah, exactly. So a rogue overgrown sheep found roaming through regional Australia has been shorn of his 35 kilogram fleece, a weight even greater than that of the famous New Zealand sheep Shrek, who was captured in 2005 after <laughs> six years on the loose. <laughs> the Merino ram, dubbed Barack by rescuers, was discovered wandering alone with an extraordinarily overgrown wool coat and was promptly shorn to save his life, literally to save his life. Wow. That was necessary, apparently. Because, I mean, yeah, 35 kilograms is quite heavy. You should check out the article picture, because if you haven't seen Barack before, it's really pretty incredible. And so Kyle Barron from the Edgar's Mission Farm Sanctuary told Reuters that it appeared Barack was once an owned sheep who had escaped. And merino sheep do not shed their fleece and need to be shorn at least annually as their wool continues to grow. Mm -hmm. So... This pursuit ovine was found (laughs) near Lancefield in Victoria, and rescuers said he had eked out an existence eating small shoots of grass. And he had at one time been ear-tagged. However, these appear to have been torn out by the thick matted fleece around his face. Wow. So, like, yeah, this wool is just unstoppable. And Baron says he was in a bit of a bad way. He was underweight, and due to all of the wool around his face, he could barely see. So... Barrick is in the latest in a long line of very large and wooly sheep to make international headlines. In 2005, Shrek became a beloved celebrity in New Zealand after he spent six years evading capture. He was eventually shorn of his 27-kilogram fleece and even met the New Zealand Prime Minister, Helen Clark, (laughs) before he died in 2011. 
So, you know, pretty big deal. A 2014 <laughs> Guardian Australia analysis estimated that Shrek's fleece could be used to produce 47.3 jumpers. Wow. Sweaters, yeah. yeah. Based on a 70% yield assumption, Barack's fleece would be the equivalent of 61.3 wool sweaters what? or 490 pairs of men's business socks. So, like, nice socks, you know, not yeah, just yeah. regular socks. <laughs> <laughs> and Shrek's legacy much lives on in his home country with TVNZ announcing the discovery of Barack with the headline Lost Australian Sheep Brings Back Memories of Our Very Own Shrek. Uh, in 2014, another escaped marina ram called Sean the Sheep was found with a 23.5 kilogram fleece in New Zealand. Last year in Australia, an escaped ewe, eventually dubbed Eunice, was relieved of her 20 kilogram fleece after she was discovered in central Victoria. But all sheep, Barack included, still pale in comparison to Chris, a Canberran ram, who was found in 2005 with a world record 41 kilogram fleece, and it wow. was twice his body weight. And they have a little oh. graphic here of how much these all would produce in terms of like sweaters and socks. And Chris would have produced 71.8 sweaters and 574 pairs of socks. Wow. Like just wild. And so, I guess I guess these guys, it's because we've bred them to like never shed their their wool. Because like they wouldn't survive in the wild. They've got to be that we made them that way, right? Yeah, yeah I, I, I assume so. I just Googled this because I was so curious. Someone on Quora, which I guess is like the more legitimate version of Yahoo Answers or Yahoo Questions. <laughs> um, apparently, sheep did used to shed annually, kind of like fluffy dogs do. So mm -hmm. it was inconvenient to have fleece be naturally shed. So they looked for mutant sheep that did not <laughs> shed. I mean, it's just a matter of time before we have an X-Men situation, but it's all sheep. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Mutant sheep sounds very frightening. I don't know that we yeah. want to be messing with that. I'm ready for mutant sheep. I mean, come on. 2021's off to a great start. We already right. had the murder hornets. Give me the mutant sheep. Yeah, right. get that on your bingo card early. Right. Yep. So Baron said Barack had adapted well to his new weight and was also settling in with other sheep on the farm, too. He's probably nice. super buff underneath there. Like, he's got a lot of muscles the other sheep don't have. I mean, yeah, I bet, yeah. I bet he's having a pretty good life. He's walking around all the ladies like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the sheep you've ever seen. He, he's a little underweight because he was, oh, you know, yeah. out there. But he, he certainly looks like a wiry little fella, especially now <laughs> that he's uh, missing this massive, massive wool coat. This That's image right. is really worth looking up. Uh, it's pretty wild. <laughs> well, it's but, good uh, to know that his coat is not bothering him anymore. Oh, God. <laughs> 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 on that note all right <laughs> well that is all we have time for today we're so glad you've joined us some of the articles we did not have time to get to include meet catfish charlie the cia's robotic spy the curious case of the handlebar bag scam and yopon the rebirth of america's forgotten tea so all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you'd like to support us, please go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. We love it when we get to drink a cup of coffee and not subsist on... <laughs> I have no idea where I'm going with this. <laughs> we really appreciate your support. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.